0: Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Deepak Ravindran, who's an NHS consultant in pain medicine. His whole interview was a total eye-opener for me and has really made me reassess how I think about pain. Pain, particularly long-term intractable chronic pain, can be one of the most difficult medical conditions to live with, making normal work or life almost impossible. Globally, around 20% of people suffer from the condition and getting the help they need can be incredibly difficult. In his book, The Pain-Free Mindset, Deepak explains how many of us completely misunderstand pain. The problem can be someone with chronic pain can have a battery of tests that all come back clear, which may lead some medical professionals to suggest that there's not actually anything wrong with these patients. But that is not the case. For the first time in 2022, the World Health Organization updated the International Classification of Diseases to include chronic pain as a separate medical condition. And as Deepak reveals... The biological mechanism of chronic pain, which can lead to an oversensitized immune and nervous system, is not the same as that of acute pain, which also means a very different treatment approach is required. That means not just using drugs, but taking a whole body approach, which includes diet, exercise, sleep, and cognitive techniques. But before we get to the interview with Deepak, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more, you can sign up to my Substack account, which is liztucker.substack.com, go to my podcast website at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. And if you'd like to financially support the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can provide support at patreon.com, what your GP doesn't tell You or via my website, which as I mentioned is whatyourgpdoesn'ttellyou.com. Many thanks. And now back to Deepak's interview. Deepak Ravindran holds qualifications in anaesthetics, lifestyle, musculoskeletal, and pain medicine. He's been a consultant in pain medicine since 2010 at the Royal Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust in the UK. Deepak is currently the clinical lead for specialist pain services for all of West Berkshire. He says that chronic pain requires an approach that is not just about medications, injections and surgery, but about supporting health in its entirety. Here's his interview. So Deepak, thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I've been listening to your podcast as a listener. So now it's a great honour to be now your guest as well. Really appreciate that.
0: I think some people have the attitude that pain is awkward, but not necessarily a priority for health. Yet long-term intractable pain can be devastating for patients. Do you think we undervalue the importance of sorting it out?
1: Yes, it is the biggest pandemic that we have not really talked about. We have not addressed it satisfactorily, and I think that has been the failing, not just at the individual or the medical level, but also at a societal and healthcare system level. Chronic pain was not recognized as a separate condition or a disease by the World Health Organization until very recently it was always considered that chronic pain is an extension. So if you can actually do something about acute pain, you can prevent chronic pain from happening. That was the perception that is still the teaching. So it meant that all the research and every kind of drug or treatment that was focused on stopping acute pain, doing something about acute pain because it was considered chronic pain as extension. We now know with the evidence we have that chronic pain is a very, very different condition from acute pain. It actually is a disease entity in its own right. And this has now been recognized by the World Health Organization and what we call as the International Classification of Diseases, ICD, who have brought out their new classification, which went live in the early part of last year, 2022. And that reality is that up to 28 million people in the UK, which according to the 2011 census was almost 40% of the UK population is suffering with chronic pain. Globally, one out of every five citizens suffers with some form of pain that's lasting more than three months. So that's one and a half billion citizens. And if you look at that just in sheer numbers, that is more than all of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, anxiety and depression put together. And that's not taking into account the economic productivity laws of people who are living long with pain but not able to contribute to society. So it's an incredibly common problem. Indeed, indeed.
0: And I think we have this idea that pain always comes from a particular part of the body and that if we can treat that body part, that will solve the problem. But that's not always the case.
1: Absolutely. I think in acute pain, where it occurs from a particular part of the body that has got injured or you've undergone surgery to a particular part of the body or you've had a heart attack, absolutely, I think those indications that it is likely to come from a structure is absolutely right. A release of chemicals that occurs where you had that injury. That phenomenon in acute pain where you have chemicals released at the site of injury is a unique word in itself. And that word is called nociception. When you have acute pain, the amount of nociception would equal the pain experience you get. You have a surgery on your knee. Your knee is going to require protection. Your brain and your central nervous system will say that area and that part of the body needs to be protected. And so the prediction is right. The processing is right. The experience of pain is appropriate for the knee surgery you had. But it doesn't happen in chronic pain. The signaling and the processing and prediction changes and the experience of pain often doesn't match with the kind of injury that somebody has. And that, I think, explains a lot of patients I see in my clinic and GPs talk about where they have back pain or neck pain or knee pain, but their x-rays or MRIs don't seem to be showing any corresponding changes. And that confuses the patients and sometimes the healthcare professionals as well.
0: So basically, our nervous system has become sort of oversensitized. What do we think causes that?
1: The research of the last 20 years and the new technology that's come through, where we are actually able to see that when you give a signal to the nervous system, you see which areas of the brain light up when a nociceptive signal comes. That has given us the understanding that depending on the context, depending on how Vulnerable the nervous system already feels before it encounters that painful stimulus. It has already had a set of predictions. We are now realizing that in many people, the nervous system can be pre sensitized due to a variety of contexts. It would be ready to protect you at a much lower threshold of an injury. And that means that it changes the intensity of the experience. We can't correlate what you see on an x-ray anymore with how intensely the person is feeling the pain. The amount of arthritis that somebody picks up on an x-ray or on an MRI has no correlation with the intensity of pain that somebody might feel. I think the most common word we're using now is called central sensitization, where the nervous system and the brain can be sensitized. And that would also include the immune system as well. Yes, that is the biggest game changer, I think. And it's unfortunate that we still don't get taught or very well taught about it in medical school or even when I was doing my pain training. It has not been a feature of our training. We were indeed taught, and I think this might be surprising to some of your listeners. So we were taught in medical school that the immune system has no connection with the nervous system as far as the brain was concerned. Indeed, we were taught that the brain is an immune-privileged organ, meaning that the blood-brain barrier is so tight, it's like the Great Wall of China, you just can't break through, there are only one or two places, and that is fiercely guarded, so the immune system is separate and the brain is separate. We actually now know that as young as the first seven to eight days of when the fetus is first forming, when the egg and the initial part is fusing together and forming, the first representatives of the immune system actually make it through into the brain before even the blood-brain barrier is formed. And they stay there having a constant communication and connection with the rest of the body's immune system as they grow. And so this particular representative of the immune system is called the microglia. And these are essentially the buffers within the nervous system between each of the nerve cells. Every junction between the nervous system, between two nerve cells, where the signal is jumping from one nerve cell to the next nerve cell, and the signal can be an emotion, can be a sensation, can be a touch, can be a feeling, can be a memory. There is this representative of the immune system like a traffic policeman watching that signal move as it comes. And based on what the immune system feels about the threat, it will be ready to mount a response. And if it sees that it's a signal that it has to amplify, it would modulate and turn it up. And if it sees that it doesn't need to be amplified, it can dampen it down, and we think that it's those immune cells that are responsible for the sensitization, or at least that's where the research right now is pointing.
0: So basically, this is that the activation of certain immune cells is involved in the development of chronic pain.
1: Yes, I think the research right now is robust and strong to say that it is a combination of a neuroimmune sensitization, specifically the microglial cells and maybe some of their cousins, that is at the heart of every persistent, worsening chronic pain condition. This category where the nervous system itself can get sensitized and can cause chronic pain-like conditions that kind of pain itself has been called now plastic pain.
0: In fact, I think you categorise four different types of pain. So I think it would be just useful to give an overview of those four types of pain if we could.
1: Absolutely. So this was, again, what all of your listeners, GPs and uh, medical professionals and all of us were taught in the 90s that there are three types of pain. There's when you get this injury, this is called nociceptive pain because chemicals are produced at the site where you have had an injury or a surgery. And then we realized that there would be this different kind of pain that would happen when the nerves are actually cut during surgery or you have chemotherapy, which damages the nerves. And then you have conditions like MS or for that matter, even things like diabetes or alcohol, where you know that there is going to be nerve damage. And that was called neuropathic pain. But we just now spoke about how the immune and the nervous system can get involved and sensitized. And this meant that this had to now be a different kind of pain because when you have the nervous and immune system getting sensitized, this was called plastic pain, meaning the word came essentially that nocice is a word for pain. Plastic, indicating that this is something that can be dynamically modified. It can be reversed or it can be amplified. And so that plasticity of the brain was recognized. So that's why it is called nociplastic pain. And we had to realize that this was a separate category from the nociceptive pain where you could have blood tests that would show signs of inflammation. You might actually be physically able to see a joint, is swollen or an area is red and warm and hot looking, all the signs of inflammation. But with nociplastic pain, you need not have blood tests that show any signs of inflammation or infection. You need not have swelling in the knees or hips or the back or the head when you have the pain, but the sensation and the feeling is very real. And of course, we always realize that there can be a group of patients could have combinations of both the mixed pain wherein it might start off as a acute pain and the nerves would have become plastic and modified so you can have a combination of nociceptive and nociplastic a rheumatoid arthritis patient would have initially an acute flare-up of the joint so that would be an acute nociceptive pain but after three or six months of the rheumatoid arthritis being active the nervous system and the immune system, after all, it's an autoimmune condition, they would have become activated and sensitized. So you'll have nociplastic pain. If the rheumatoid goes on year on year, the joints would get deformed and there might be pressure, active physical pressure on the nerves itself. So they'd have a neuropathic pain. So he or she would have a mixed pain pattern. So that's the four categories of pain as we understand it now. So I suppose the risk
0: for a patient is, if I've got pain, all my scans are clear. The risk is I may be defined as a hypochondriac. You know, I may be told there's nothing wrong with me, it's all in my head. Now, I appreciate, it. in a sense, everything is in our head, but that I am
1: imagining this. And that is really an ongoing stigma that we need to address, Liz. That is very unfortunate if a medical professional were to leave the patient with that feeling of, are they making it up? Because that's definitely not the case. If the MRI scans or the X-rays don't show any signs, the right way to have that conversation now would be to say, that yes, this is not because you're having an active swelling in your joint. So that's a good thing. Look at your blood test. You don't have anything there. And it's good as well that there's no evidence of nerve damage or injury. This is not neuropathic pain. But I'm really glad to let you know that actually what you have is a sensitization of the nervous system, which can happen in many such patients like yourself after a period of three or six months. So what we need to look at is to say, what can be making the nervous and immune system hypersensitive? And what can we do to bring it down? Because this kind of nociplastic pain, there's huge hope. You can actually reverse it. It's not easy. There isn't the standard drug or injection to fix it. You can't reverse it with one flick of a switch. But there are a few things that can be done. So I I feel that nociplastic pain is an opportunity and a big hopeful message for us when we understand the nervous and immune system in this way, rather than if somebody's told, This is what you got to live with. That feels like a much more hopeless message because nobody seems to have a way of saying, How do you get out of it?
0: So, Deepak, where well, we've localized acute pain, it may be that the more traditional approaches can help, but with chronic no, see, plastic pain, we need to look much more at a whole body approach.
1: Yes, absolutely. When we think of traditional approaches, we've been given the impression that that has got the best evidence. And by that, we think it's either got to be a tablet or a medication or an injection or a surgery or an infusion for treatments like yoga, for mindfulness, for meditation, for nutrition we're realizing that actually what we used to consider as touchy-feely, alternative, complementary stuff, the evidence there is probably as good as what are considered traditional approaches. And now with the fact that we understand that the traditional approaches of medications and injections have lots of side effects, I kind of think that the trade-off and the risk-benefit ratio of having a what we used to think as a non-traditional approach which is safe and can help if given the right way. I think it almost is equivalent now in terms of how we should consider talking about it and suggesting it to patients to try. Because I think when I have someone who wants to try mindfulness or yoga or acupuncture versus offering them a strong anti-neuropathic or an opioid medication for pain, I'm finding myself leaning towards having a conversation and a shared decision-making to say, these are the side effects and benefits and risks of the traditional methods. These are the side effects and benefits and risks of the non-traditional methods. What do you think appeals to you? And by and large, patients want to try the non-traditional, less risky methods first.
0: Looking then at when drugs might be effective, which is in the more localised pain in those more, if you like, traditional pain models. Yeah. How effective are drugs in treating those types of pain? Good question.
1: And the initial understanding was that they have a good evidence base, certainly when you compared them to placebo. And we extended a lot of other drugs that were used for epilepsy or depression. We also got them in for managing chronic pain because we saw some overlap, so even though studies were not done, we found that there was value in using it off-license for some of those pain conditions.
0: Off-license is when the drug hasn't been approved by the regulator for that use, but doctors are free to prescribe it for other uses.
1: Absolutely, absolutely right. I should have clarified, thank you for that. And. Then you had opioids, which were used for acute pain, but then we extended that use to even the long-term chronic pains. And in the last 5-10 years, we've had to realize a lot of the errors and our own desires probably to help the patients, not knowing what else to offer. So I think the ground reality now is that I talk to patients about this concept of the number needed to treat and number needed to harm. And by that measure, I would have to say that most drugs, medications work only 30% of the time in 30% of patients with about 30% efficacy or effectiveness. So by that standard, I know I'm simplifying it. This came from a work by Professor Moore at Oxford. I think the actual numbers are a little bit more up and down, but broadly at this range, 30, 30, 30 which means that these drugs are not effective in 70% of the patients.
0: And I was surprised in one of the most common painkillers, paracetamol, that the number needed to harm, which is the number of patients who are likely to be affected by side effects, is 12. That means 1 in 12 patients are likely to suffer a side effect from what is one of the UK's most common painkillers.
1: Absolutely. When I was writing and studying for the book, I was surprised with this myself. This is not something that was common knowledge to me. That's something that I still consider safe compared to all the other drugs I have at my disposal. Yes, you're absolutely right that the number needed to harm, meaning that the number of people who needed to take it for one person to experience a form of harm or a side effect is only 12. So that does mean that we have to be cautious about every drug we give for pain management. And I would really encourage your listeners to check out websites like that, the nnt.org, which is very useful to have a more appropriate conversation with their healthcare professionals, especially if they are experiencing some side effects.
0: Yes, I can put those in the show notes so the listeners can pick this up afterwards. So, do opioids still have a role in pain management despite the recent problems that have been highlighted? In acute pain,
1: absolutely. I think they are still what I would use with my background as an anesthetist. Uh, I would definitely say that they have such a remarkable efficacy in managing pain during emergency department admissions, during hospital theater admissions, operation surgery, and in acute places. But when you try to think about using it for chronic pain, we have to be really careful and find that cohort or that group of patients where it makes a difference. So it's a much, much, much smaller group of people who will benefit from opioids in the long term, who will get the quality of life and the functional improvements by taking it in the long term. So I wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The evidence is clear that opioids do not work for everyone in the long term so there's a lot more responsibility on healthcare professionals to help find that group of patients who could benefit from being trialed on it on the long term and there are now some good tools or strategies that i use in my clinical practice to find that group of patients who might be the long term benefiters of opioids but certainly not for everyone
0: and how do you avoid addiction if you're giving the drugs in long term use
1: our understanding of the reward pathways of the brain through which addiction is mediated. We've now understood it so much more in the last 10, 15 years that I actually have a slightly more nuanced appreciation of these drugs. So I would accept that these opioid drugs act on the reward pathway and therefore could be considered addictive in the sense of the term. But I would say that they are probably going to be as addictive as anything else, like chocolate, like sugar, like corn, like shopping therapy. So I would probably say that when we look at what acts on the reward pathway to soothe us and to give us that relief and that reduction in stress, then yes, by that measure, opioids are one of the many things that act on the reward pathway and do so fairly quickly to give us that relief. It also means that it's not the drug alone that's addictive. It's actually in finding that person at that time who could potentially be triggered by the reward pathway to then keep seeking opioids again and again and again, because that's what addiction is. Addiction is when someone seeks one particular thing again and again, compulsive use, craving is there extreme end of craving is called addiction. So I would want to say, can I identify that person who is in a vulnerable place to whom this drug could potentially become that extreme end?
0: So you're saying that there may be genetic and environmental factors that will affect whether I'm likely to become addicted or not?
1: That is what the research right now is leaning towards, that more than the genetics, it's the environmental elements i would be more of the opinion that if the environmental conditions in which that person is existing is not suitable then i would be much more careful about wanting to initiate opioids
0: so why is it that in some cases long term opioid use makes the pain worse
1: this is a very very interesting phenomenon at some point there is this group of patients wherein if they have been taking higher and higher doses of opioids. In a misguided attempt to say that higher you go, you will get better pain relief. We now know that that's not appropriate beyond a certain point. And the risk is that at a certain point, the body gets used to having a certain element of medication. Our body produces internal opioids, the endogenous opioids, endorphins, When we give external opioids by taking medications at higher and higher doses, the body's internal mechanisms kind of shut down. So the internal factories don't produce that much anymore because it's coming from the outside. In that group of patients, if you then try to increase it further, this curious phenomenon is noticed that the higher you try to go up, the signaling gets more and more ramped up and the patients start to experience more pain. This is still something at a chemical level is being researched and it is called opioid induced hyperalgesia, meaning that you take more opioids in an attempt to reduce the pain, but you actually find it makes the pain worse. And so you take more and then it makes it worse. This is something that we think is happening at receptor level. Some receptors get more and more expressed. So the more opioids you give, the more they fire. It's something that we've become aware only in the last 10, 15 years. We are making patients more aware of that. And that's partly one of the reasons we've realized that we need to actively create a cap. So in the UK, the British Pain Society has suggested that 100 to 120 milligrams of morphine equivalent a day is the upper limit of what they suggest as a cap, not to go any higher, because we can't predict who then can be at risk of having long-term problems, especially things like opioid-induced hyperalgesia.
0: Now, one of the things you've talked about in terms of drug management is rather than giving one drug at a higher dose, giving a number of drugs at a lower dose.
1: Why would you use that approach? One is, of course, the side effect profile. We know that any of these drugs that are used for pain management, if they are given at high doses, they are going to have their own problem of side effects. So anti-inflammatory drugs can be problematic to the kidney or to the stomach or sometimes to the heart. Uh, You've got opioids, which have their own set of issues. You've got nerve medications like amitriptyline, which at high doses can cause sedation or drowsiness or other cognitive side effects. So one is the problem of side effects. The second is because... The protective mechanisms that the brain, the nervous, and the immune system have put in place, they've got multiple pathways. They have built in the redundancy that they don't depend on just one thing to give them information about protection. When you give only one drug, you're only going after one pathway. You give an antidepressant, it's going to act on one pathway. You give opioids, it acts on one set of receptors. You give anti-inflammatories, it acts on one set. But because you're trying to manage pain using medications, my sense is that if you gave low doses of two or three medicines, you would be trying to dampen or change a few pathways. And you would be also doing it at the doses that do not trigger, hopefully, any unwanted side effects. So that's been my rationale for suggesting lower doses of different drugs to get multiple pathways and it also goes back to our original discussion that once you go beyond three or four months you've got an element of nociplastic pain where the nerves have become sensitized which means that if you only depend on codeine or paracetamol or anti-inflammatories you are not tackling the nociplastic element of the pain and if you depend only on the nociplastic drugs like antineuropathics or some opioids you're not tackling other things that can work.
0: But if you're giving civil drugs together, is there a risk that they might interact with each other in ways that you can't predict?
1: Right now, I'm not aware of too many interactions between anti-inflammatories and the nerve medications, but you're absolutely right. If we are trying to combine benzodiazepines, like diazepam or muscle relaxants, and you try to add in some antidepressants, and you add in some opioids like tramadol or codeine, You're absolutely right, interactions are a problem, and so we are quite cautious. When I request, because I work in secondary care, when I request my GP colleagues to try the medications, I suggest that they start one thing at a time, wait for a few few weeks for some equilibrium or stability to be established, and then introduce a third drug or a fourth drug, if appropriate. But all of it is an attempt to prevent interactions. And also to start these drugs, I also say start at the lowest dose of these medications. And I speak to patients and say that we may not get to the ideal quality of pain relief you want within the first week of starting these medications, but that is because we don't want interactions. We don't want to start at high doses. So you've got to be patient as well when we climb up on the medication doses.
0: I don't know what your thought is on this, Deepak, but I interviewed Terence Young a while back, who's a drug safety advocate. And he was arguing that actually you can often start a drug lower than that given in the clinical trial and see if that has an effect.
1: You're yeah, absolutely right. I would agree with that. So I often started much lower doses than what clinical trials might have recommended. Because, again, my way of looking after my patients is not predicated anymore on just medications alone. Every time I talk to my patients and I suggest to my GP colleagues that let's start a medicine, I've also given the patients other techniques and strategies to try calming the nervous system. So I'm doing it in the hope that if they do try some of these other therapies and techniques to manage pain and calm their system down, then I might get away with a lower dose of the medication itself rather than even reaching up to treatment or clinical trial dosages.
0: So the big issue with chronic pain is then we know that this localised approach will no longer work after the pain has been going on for, say, longer than three months. I'm assuming when the patients come in to see you, they've been in pain some months. Are they hoping for a quick fix?
1: Some years, actually, Liz. So, uh, yes. The unfortunate reality is that they still are hopeful of a quick fix because somebody either the GP or their surgeon has said, oh, go to the pain clinic, they'll give a nerve block and they'll fix the pain or they'll give some medications that can kill the pain. They'll give you some painkillers. And I find that in some ways quite challenging because already the patients have got that belief. So I am having an uphill battle to actually say that, yes, I do have some nerve blocks and medications, but they are not the bee's knees as everybody thought they were. They have challenges that I have to tell you about. And once I've told them about the challenges and the risks and benefits, to them, that clinic consultation sometimes becomes their aha moment or their letdown moment that the quick fix is not there. And this is where I'm often fascinated because some of them would then say, OK, I I can accept that I don't have a choice of a drug or injection, but I'm not going to let this get to me. I'm going to do everything else that you're suggesting. You know, they grab it by the scruff of their neck and they move forward and they turn around their way of managing their pain much quicker. And there are others who... Find themselves more despondent and finally beaten down by what we call learned helplessness. They just feel that one more avenue of opportunity has been crushed by me telling them that I don't have a quick fix. And that makes them go even more despondent, drives their pre existing anxiety or depression lower. And we then need to provide them support with their mood first before we can show them the other techniques that can be tried. But the reality is, If you have nociplastic pain, which is almost always there after a period of three to six months of having had chronic pain, it gives the opportunity that now there are so many things that can make a difference. I have my success stories, as it were, of patients who have taken that approach, and it's never made a difference in one week or two weeks, but over a period of three to six months to one year, given that they've had pain for three or four years. It takes them another three to six months of effort, and they can already see the results in improved quality of life, reduced medications, better engagement with their loved ones. That is all possible.
0: So if I'm a patient and I come in to see you, I've got long-term chronic pain, what's going to be the first step in the whole body strategy?
1: When patients come to see me, both on the NHS and privately as well, what I've have is a questionnaire to get them almost thinking about what is it that they'd like from me what are the drugs they're on I ask them what their mood their anxiety their personality and their background that gives me an idea already of the whole person that I'm seeing I'm not just seeing only the pain and the tablets that they have taken but actually an understanding of who is this person who's sitting in front of me And then I'd be asking you about what is it that you'd want. And and in that, I'm trying to gauge whether you're still looking for a fix and what we think of as a biomedical approach. And that might be a different conversation, wherein I talk about the medications and interventions, but also highlight and say, there are other things, but are you in the space to actually look at those other things and believe in them and try them? And the evidence is now quite strong that if you can calm your immune system down using diet because 80 to 90% of your immune system is present in and around the intestine. So what you eat, when you eat, how you eat, with whom you eat is all going to have an ability to modulate and calm the immune system down and that can calm the nervous system down. So that will be a low-inflammatory diet? Absolutely, yes. The anti-inflammatory diet is what I suggest and there is enough evidence now to say that that kind of diet can calm the immune system down, make a difference in many autoimmune conditions and many other conditions where inflammation is proven to be an ongoing problem.
0: So I was interested to read in your book, actually, that you say the people who are obese feel more pain due to inflammatory chemicals in their bloodstream.
1: Thank you so much, Liz, for actually highlighting that I had almost forgotten. I wanted to mention that, really. We often think of obesity as Okay, it's weight, it's heaviness, and that's what's causing the joints more pain because somebody's heavy. And people often go for bariatric surgery because they feel it will improve their neck pain and back pain. And in bariatric surgery, they don't actually take out the fat. What we now understand is that it's not the fat that is our love handles, but it is actually the fat that is inside and around our intestine And it actually behaves like an inflammatory organ. It behaves like a separate organ and its cells called adipocytes. They actually produce chemicals called adipokines. And the moment those chemicals are produced, your immune system, which is sitting right next to it in the gut, thinks it's inflammatory. It relays that information to the brain through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the nerve that is the longest nerve in the body and it provides information about your gut and your internal organs to the brain and some information from the brain back to the gut. So the adipocytes and the adipokines and the fat which is internal is actually a much bigger problem and that's why you have a lot of patients who have had bariatric surgery or other surgeries They don't notice a significant reduction in their pain after their bariatric surgery because they haven't still addressed the factors that can reduce the visceral fat, which is a very, very different organism altogether. It's only now the surgeons are realizing this and they are changing their protocols. But we need to realize that obesity in itself is a pro-inflammatory condition. Because it's
0: intimately connected with various metabolic syndromes.
1: Absolutely, as we notice in other conditions as well.
0: Another thing that you suggest for anyone with chronic pain is it's really important to keep moving. Why does exercise matter so much?
1: We always knew that it increases blood flow. In fact, I came across some interesting research which might be very relevant to your ethnic minorities or to your listeners from South Asian communities. It is research that you need up to 200 to 230 minutes of exercise per week for that category, that community of people, partly because of the baseline higher risk that they have. But what we understand with regards to pain is that when you do physical activity, you are actually creating the circuits. You're creating and you're manufacturing new brain circuits, new nerve connections, And that means that you are taking advantage and creating the conditions for what's called neuroplasticity. We as yet do not know how we can actually erase protective or overprotective circuits. But what we know is we can always create new nerve circuits that can overwrite them. Any kind of physical activity, things that you find pleasurable, things that you can do with others, things that you find are less stressful. That kind of physical activity done regularly allows new nerve circuits and new circuits and new chemicals to be formed that can allow the neuroplasticity to embed and form.
0: Now, one of the other things you talk about is the importance of sleep. But I suppose I might say as a patient, well,
1: I'd love to sleep, but I've got this awful
0: chronic pain which is stopping me sleep.
1: I think the whole challenge with sleep is that we've realised that It's bidirectional. If people have had less sleep, then it already means that their nervous system and their circuits that are there in the brain and spinal cord have never got the chance to get rid of the waste that would be produced as part of nerve activity. Like every cell, when we do work, when we do energy, we produce some waste material. That waste material has got to be cleared up by our council authorities, as it were. And that council authorities and those janitors, those housekeepers that clean up after us happens when we sleep. So when we start to reduce our sleep hours due to the kind of lifestyles we lead these days, we are creating an environment where our nerve cells have not had the chance to be fully cleared. Our junctions and our roads and our traffic is still clogged up in small places. So then it can take a very small event, like your first episode of back pain or an an infection or a viral attack from somewhere to just tip it over the edge. So now we realize that lack of sleep actually predisposes to chronic pain. But when you have chronic pain, it just becomes a vicious cycle that feeds into the other and then worsens the sleep pattern. So breaking that cycle now becomes important and equally productive. In reducing pain alongside any other medications you use. So, how do you break the cycle? This is another challenge because I don't think we've got a cast iron evidence or a protocol to say that this is how you break it in everyone. But what we've realized and the data and how I talk to patients about is what's called sleep hygiene or optimizing sleep techniques in the run up to bed. So, for example, Stopping alcohol about three hours before your planned bedtime, stopping coffee around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, about six to eight hours before your planned bedtime, the kind of food that you have, high-carbohydrate foods to be reduced and lower during bedtime. In the one to two hours before bedtime, it's almost as if, can you teach your nervous and immune system to relax? How would you put your 3 year or four-year-old to bed at nighttime? you would be doing a few things. You'd be wanting to give it a bath. You'd be wanting to take it to a quiet room. You'd be wanting to turn the blinds down, not have any stimulation in the run-up to sleep. Those are all the techniques that I suggest to patients to consider that these are all things you could do to start calming your nervous immune system in the run-up towards your bedtime. And I've had a number of patients obviously add some elements of diet or some kind of, you know, chamomile tea or some some other kind of techniques. But I think the biggest hot ticket items are avoiding certain foods, uh, having a sleep routine, so a warm shower, cooling down your room, uh, and then ensuring that you do some kind of relaxation technique before going to bed. Those are usually the biggest things that seem to work for my patients.
0: And you've also suggested that techniques such as mindfulness, Or psychological therapies such as cognitive behavioural therapy can be helpful?
1: Absolutely. Part of the relaxation techniques that come through are that for insomnia, cognitive behavioural therapy has been shown to be really effective. I think, again, we've got to be mindful of the fact that that CBT has shown to be very useful if it is proven insomnia. But a lot of our patients are anxious. They don't have the classic insomnia that the trial works for. However, I do suggest that mindfulness-based relaxation techniques, there are two, three apps now that do offer CBT in a phone package, and that is something that could be used.
0: But I suppose if I've got pain that's so terrible that it's completely ruined my quality of life, I've been desperate to see you for for months, years, in fact, and you say, "Oh well, got to eat differently, you've got to exercise and sleep, and perhaps the psychological therapist as well. Some patients must think, well, hang on, that's not going to solve the problem. I've got this awful pain. Eating a healthier diet, doing all these other things, that's just touching the edges.
1: Still a challenge that when patients come to me and I suggest this, they say, you know, are you telling me that there's nothing that will take away the pain? And it's a conversation that I have like, OK, if I don't have the drugs or the techniques to take it away, And your surgeon or whoever it is has told you that this is not a pain that can be operated on. I'm offering you here a way of training your nervous system, helping calm your system down, and that can bring your quality of life back. What would you prefer? And I love them to reflect on what their choices are. It's very difficult. I think the patients are absolutely right in asking me that question and feeling that way. But sometimes it's a journey that they have to make to realize actually that there are things that they also have to do. These are things where we are now asking the patient to also be an active participant rather than to be the passive recipient of something that gets done to them. And that's the nature of a chronic condition these days within the NHS or within the world itself. When we realize that we've got something chronic, there is an element of what we also need to do in order to improve things. And all of these that you and I are outlining and I talk about in my book are evidence-based ways that have made a difference in many people's lives. One other way is to actually say, I understand how difficult it is, but here are websites where people are talking about the journey of how they overcame chronic pain and got their quality of life back. And they have done combinations of what I'm suggesting. They have shown that they are not needing to be dependent on drugs or injections. They have either got rid of their pain, become pain-free, or are at least not letting the pain affect their lives anymore, and they can go about becoming who they are.
0: So obviously without breaking any patient confidentiality, can you give any examples of people who've been to see you with intractable pain who followed this approach and have seen their lives change?
1: There's one patient of mine that I had looked after she is a young lady who, when she came to me about four or five years ago, had a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, had a diagnosis of extreme body pain on multiple drugs and medications, been feeling let down by the rheumatologist, by the GP and other people that she'd seen before coming to me, was really struggling as she could not go anywhere, been out of a job for almost eight months, almost bedbound on many days due to the extreme flares of pain that she experienced with none of the drugs working for her. And she came to me at that time hoping that I would be able to help out with a certain new drug. And I had this conversation with her that went on for an hour. It was another conversation about three weeks later after trialing another drug which she hadn't tried, and that also hadn't worked. And it was in the second or third conversation wherein the seeds that had been saying, look, these are all the other things you can do to make a difference. The first time she was saying, I want a drug because I can't do anything beyond this. I'm not doing any of the other stuff. At the third consultation, something had flipped in her. She was saying, "Okay, I've tried everything. There's nothing else you're saying I can do. Maybe this is what I want to do. I'm going to double down. I'm going to look at nutrition. I'm going to see what changes I can make to my life. She had supportive parents who were able to help her with it. And over the next one and a half years that I was looking after her and seeing her infrequently, We helped come down on the opioids, on the other medication she was on. She started to go back to a job. She took up doing a sleep hygiene change. She met a nutritionist of mine and modified her entire diet and found that she had a gluten allergy that was making her feel very bloated and contributing to her tummy pain. She took up quine therapy, so it was a way of using horses and animals to relax her and calm her down. And last year, she'd done the London Marathon. She'd done two other half marathons before that. And she's moved in with a partner into a new house. She's not completely free of pain, but she hardly takes any medication. She knows what to do when the flare-ups happen. And she's much more in control of herself and her body and her life than she ever was for the previous 15 years that she was struggling with pain.
0: And it sounds like, most importantly of all, her quality of life has been completely changed.
1: Absolutely, on very little medication, but with a much better understanding of what she and her body can do.
0: So finally, Deepak, clearly we need to take pain management much more seriously. Are there any other approaches which you think may be valuable to modern medicine in the future?
1: I think there is a lot of promise with psychedelics. There is some better understanding to be had with medicinal cannabis so that we don't make the same mistakes with medicinal cannabis that we did with opioids. So that's medications. There are infusions of ketamine or lignocaine, local anesthetic that might work for certain pain conditions that are being researched now and we will have better clarity over the next three to five years. There's the understanding of stress and the autonomic nervous system and the vagus. How do you stimulate the vagus? How do you use electricity to modulate the vagus? How do you use electricity to modulate the nervous system itself, you know, the spinal cord or the brain? So I think that's an exciting field of research. Our understanding of sleep, our understanding of the microbiome and diets like the fasting mimicking diet, those are all newer ways of looking at calming the microglia or the immune system that I think are going to be radical in terms of how we approach pain management. A newer technique that is looking at what's called pain reprocessing therapy, which is essentially a technique. That fuses some elements of behavioral techniques. So for conditions like fibromyalgia or tension headache or migraine or irritable bowel, there's a better understanding that when stress modifies it, you can reprocess and change the nervous system. And pain reprocessing therapy as a technique has come up in the last two years with some really good data. It needs to be replicated, but I think it will be pain reprocessing therapy and variations of that which probably will be the next technique to look at. So I think now as we understand more and more about how the nervous system and immune system work together, we can find a variety of ways to calm it down, to bring it towards equilibrium. What I have realized is that we need to change the system itself. We need to bring back that level of community and connectedness, the whole sea change in the UK that we are having with social prescribing with health coaches who are getting more involved in actually supporting people with behaviour change. I think that I feel there is great promise in realising how we can use that to reduce pain.
0: Absolutely fascinating, Deepak. Thank you so much for talking today.
1: Thank you so much, Liz, for having me on. Goodbye. Bye.
0: Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesn't tell you.com many thanks for listening bye for now